0: Today is week three of our, uh, our new series, uh, Making Sense of the Bible. And today we're talking about what the Bible is and how to interpret it, how to understand the Bible. Well, let's watch the promo video. Mark Twain once said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that really trouble me. It's all the things in the Bible that I do understand. That's what really troubles me. There are a significant number of people who, when they read it, are just troubled by what they find. And the Bible, which was meant to draw people to God, actually becomes a barrier for many people. It's not a lack of faith that leads us to wrestle with the Bible. It's because we have faith that when we find something that seems inconsistent with the character of God, that we wrestle with that. I hope when people are done reading this book that they have an appreciation for the historical context, the culture of Scripture, how the Bible was put together. who wrote it, why they wrote it, and, and then uh, how to make sense of its troubling passages so that they can read the Bible and they can hear God speaking through it. So even in a church, especially because in a church, we're in a church like this, when you talk about the Bible, there are, there are different feelings that come up about the Bible. There are different thoughts that come up about the Bible. There's probably a wide spectrum of views on the Bible, even in this congregation, and there certainly is in, in the country. And so for some, you know, you love the Bible, and, and uh, maybe you've read it for a long time, and maybe for the first time in your life, you are starting to wrestle with the questions that maybe you didn't know about fully or that were put on the back burner before. Um, for some, maybe you had a lot of experience with the Bible, but it's been the opposite for you, that, that you've had some experiences, experiences that have been very difficult for you. And now you're not sure that you even want to read it. It it might be kind of a challenge to come to, uh, you know, a service where there's a a talk like this because you think of the Bible and it's just all bad things come to mind. It's just all negative. There are others, maybe you're deconstructing your faith and and you just find it's kind of falling apart and, and you're not sure how it's all going to turn out. There are others who are trying to reconstruct their faith. And maybe they've kind of, they've deconstructed and they've figured out what they don't believe and now they're looking to build something to reconstruct this new thing. It's going to look different than it used to, but you're reconstructing and so maybe you're open to seeing the Bible in a new light. And so I just want to acknowledge that there's probably a wide range of thoughts and feelings about the Bible as we go into this topic today. And during the series, kind of a theme for me in this entire series is I want to suggest that thinking, compassionate people can take the Bible seriously. That intelligent people who are culturally aware and, and, and sensitive people and they're sensitive to issues and they're informed people, they can take the Bible seriously. People like you. The, the point that I wanna suggest during this entire series is that thinking compassionate people can take the Bible seriously. And so in this series, and especially now the rest of the, the series, we're gonna be talking about questions like, is the Bible anti-science? Uh, We did a series about that in the past, but there are lots of people who have questions about the Bible and the scientific record, the Bible and evidence, the Bible and reason, the Bible and the enlightenment. It goes even beyond science. Why does God seem so violent at times in the Bible? We're going to look at that next week when we talk about the Bible and violence. There are troubling things that the Bible says, and one of the things in the New Testament, there's a letter that suggests that women should keep silent in church. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry. Like that, I, hate to, I hate to be the one who brings something like that up. But many of you do know that. And so what do we do with passages like that? We don't follow that here. What do we do with passages like that? Why would Paul command women to keep silent? Is Jesus the only way to salvation? How does God view human sexuality? We're going to talk about that in the last week of this series. Is the book of Revelation really a guide to the end times? That, that view affects American foreign policy, whether we know that or not. So what, how do we make sense of questions like this? The series is based on Adam Hamilton's book, Making Sense of the Bible. We have two Connect groups as well that you can you can still sign up. Um, you can get in um, here in the Connect groups in week three. They're meeting for six weeks to read and discuss the book, Making Sense of the Bible. But the Bible is a best-selling book in history, and millions of people love the Bible. Others have questions about it. And at the same time, uh, people who even love it and want to learn and want to reconstruct have a lot of questions about how to interpret it. So that's where we're headed today. The topic that we're talking about today, I think, is really rooted in our understandable desire for certainty. When we don't know how life is going to turn out, when we don't know what the doctor is going to say, when we don't know what's going to happen with the job or with the finances, with this relationship, we're thrown into uncertainty. And isn't it true that much of life seems like that waiting room experience, doesn't it? Where he's kind of waiting, and and it's 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 uncertain, and you're unsure, and and so what's tempting for us as humans is to is to pretend our, uh, pretend and, and fool ourselves, and try to pretend that we can have what the theologian James Dunn calls impossible certainty, a level of certainty about things in life that humans really don't have any ability to be certain about, but we're tempted to to fool ourselves into thinking that we can be certain about those things, and that's true of anything in life. It's also true of the Bible. And when we think about the Bible and religion and faith and God and prayer and healing and, and all that's wrapped up in how we deal with uncertainty in life. And so there are some well-meaning people who take comfort in this, in this uh, belief that they can be certain about all kinds of things. Whether, you know, God's going to bless me because I, I did this for God. Or I read this in the Bible and I can be certain about it. And, or some pastor told me this sometime and I can be certain about it. They take comfort in this sense of certainty that James Dunn calls impossible. And so we wonder for those of us who do care about the Bible, who want to look at the Bible for guidance. Our, our religion, our spirituality is important to us. How do, we, how do we approach the Bible? How do we approach God and prayer and spirituality in a way that we don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend to be certain about things we can't be certain about. But at the same time, if you want to rebuild something, well, there's something you have to build on. There's some foundation. There's some, some things we have to kind of be confident of. So what do we do when it comes to certainty and uncertainty in the Bible? So when I was a teenager, I went to this little Baptist church in my hometown, Marion, Ohio. And, uh, and one of the, the things that they taught us was... Um, um, that the Bible, like B I B L E, stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible's basic instructions before leaving earth. So, of course, it's all about leaving earth. So, we, we, it's about going to heaven, some other place, some other time. So, the Bible primarily for them was about going to heaven someday, not necessarily about life right now. And, of course, basic instructions. So, when I think of basic instructions, I'm thinking in IKEA. You know instruction manual to put furniture together. I'm thinking of like the owner's manual in my car that Adam mentioned in the book and and so if if we have this view of the Bible that it should look like a basic instruction manual and it's about going to heaven someday I mean that's comforting there's some kind of some kind of need for certainty that that speaks to, but then what happens is you actually read the Bible and then you discover wait a second like. I would rather put together Ikea furniture sometimes. Like, the, you know, this, this can be really complex. This is not like an owner's manual for, for my 2008 Toyota Tundra. This is, this is not like putting together furniture. And it's not all about some other place some other time. Sometimes I don't know what it's about. Sometimes I do, and it confronts me in the here and now. And so it just seems that the Bible, man, it just doesn't quite fit into that box, that box of certainty where we're comfortable and we feel like it just gives us easy answers and it's easy to interpret like, like an instruction manual. So how can I find guidance? How can I reconstruct? How can I find something to base my life on in times when you find a lump or you're waiting or you're uncertain? What does your faith in the Bible has to have to say about that? Well, the first thing that we observe, and some of you have heard me say this probably many times before, the Bible is not an owner's manual. It's not even one book. The Bible is a collection of books. And what do we call a collection of books? A library. And so the Bible is a library. It's not, it doesn't really read like basic instructions before leaving earth. It doesn't even read like one book. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the books of the Bible were written over a span of maybe 1,200 years. We're not really sure. 1,100 years, 1,200 years by people, uh, various people, various authors who lived in various cultures and in various geographic locations in the Middle East and in Europe. And we said that the books of the Bible were not originally written even in books. They were written on animal skins that were rolled up. And, of course, those are called scrolls. And they were stored on shelves in libraries, in synagogues, and in early churches. Until there was, a, and we have a picture of some scrolls, the same picture I showed a couple of weeks ago. And um, some scrolls were, of course, written hundreds of years before other ones, and, and some places had scrolls had some of the scrolls that we now have in the Bible, but they didn't have all the scrolls that we now have in the, have in the Bible. And so, you you might have to like travel a hundred miles by camel to read Isaiah, if, if your synagogue doesn't have that. And so, even the way that the physical uh, nature of the Bible or the books can affect the way we think about them. And then uh, a couple of well, about a 100 years after Jesus, there was this invention that Adam mentioned last week called the Codex, where they cut scrolls into pieces, sew them on one side, and it became a book. And so you could, you could have a book now of each scroll, but then when you put all those books together, they form the Bible, and, and that makes it a library. And imagine if somebody walked into a library... And they said, you know, I, I read this book, and I read this book, and this magazine over here, and then and, and, and this book. And I, and I just got to tell you, hey, librarian, the books in your library contradict. There are some books in your library that say one thing, and then there are other books that say other things. You, you've got, like, a problem here. You need to figure this out. And, you know, the library reaches under, I'm sure there's some secret button where they can call the cops. I don't know if libraries have that or not, but... And, and because we would intrinsically understand, well, that's not what a library is. And the librarian might actually explain to the, to the person, you know, actually, if everything agreed, we would only need one book, but we don't have just one book. We have lots precisely because they say different things. We, we value a diversity of conversation. We value the disagreement between this book and this book. We value the different viewpoints, the different cultural experiences that inform these. We value the different outcomes, the different views of all kinds of things. And a library is where we preserve that discussion, that conversation, precisely because they do not agree with each other. So the Bible is a library. So if if we're going to interpret the Bible, even though it's, it's natural in life to have this desire for certainty, we do have to acknowledge the fact the Bible is actually a library. And then secondly, we interpret the messages of the Bible within their historical context. So if they're written in different times, in different places, then, then they're written at some point in history, in cultures, in languages, by people who have their own experiences and their own ideas. And, and the reason that that's difficult, I mean, if you, if you haven't been around church and you're kind of new to this, you're like, okay, you know, moving on, what's the point? I get it, move on. But if you haven't been around church, you may not understand what, what what a statement this is, because there are many people that have been raised in churches and told by pastors that they have to believe that every single word that they read in the Bible is inerrant, inerrant meaning without error, and, and which which is kind of it kind of shows a bias because if the Bible says some something that is different from something else, then it would be an error. And the other thing is factual, but, and so it's called an error. But so the Bible, they believe, doesn't have any errors in it, and it's called inerrant. All right. Now, usually what that means is that it's inerrant in matters of science and history and, and troubling passages that you would read where you would, you would kind of think, man, is that... Is that God's all-time will for humanity, or is that, like, bound to its own cultural time? Inerrancy has a hard time with that. Inerrancy would say, well, if it says it, it's true. It's not an error. God doesn't lie to us, and, and, and so the Bible is inerrant. And, be, and behind that is a doctrine that all Christians accept to, to different degrees, the doctrine of inspiration, that somehow God has inspired the, the writing of the biblical books, God inspired the authors spoke through them in some way, and for people who hold to inerrancy, they believe that God inspired these biblical authors to the extent that every single thing they affirm is accurate. So if, if God created the world in six literal days, as it appears to, to say in Genesis chapter 1, well, then you need to argue with your science teacher because it's inerrant. If, if, if evolution has any merit whatsoever That means God is a liar and God's not a liar. Pastor Bob said so. And and so now we have to have a view of the world that is against 90 some percent of the scientific community in the world. How many of you realize if if you're a sophomore in high school and you're raised with that view and you get to biology class, that is a pretty heavy burden to bear, isn't it? That... that this information that you are being confronted with is, a, is calling God a liar. It is an assault to your faith. And, but there are so many people who are raised with this view that the Bible is inerrant and science is wrong. And then, of course, it leads to all, other, all kinds of other views that seem to go against the Enlightenment and 20, the 21st century developed world and our views of people and, and social issues. and So some people hold to inerrancy. And it's interesting, it's kind of a new phenomenon, actually, and and mostly after Charles Darwin, because there were some people who believed that Darwin and and origin of species and the theory of evolution was a threat to their faith. And so they they said, what we need to do, we need to protect the Bible from this attack. And so this doctrine of inerrancy is a way of saying, no, Darwin was wrong, God's not a liar, the Bible's right. And they they feel like there's a sense of certainty that can come from that. I don't, I, don't have to be, I don't have to be open to scientific inquiry and questions and not have it all figured out. Oh, I know how, I know how it is because I read it in the book. And, and so there's a sense of certainty there. While the other view that's been held by Christians for the rest of Christian history would be called infallibility. Now that's still a pretty big word. I mean, if, if somebody says, well, you're not inerrant, but you're infallible, like they're still a fan of you. That's, that's, that's like a high statement to make if you call something infallible. Infallible means that the Bible is reliable in all matters of faith and practice. So if you want to follow Jesus and you want to be a Christian and, and you want to go to heaven someday if you die and, and you want to know what it's like to be a good person and, and be a follower of Jesus in, in this world, then you read the Bible. And the Bible's a reliable guide in all matters of faith and practice. That was good enough. That infallibility was good enough for hundreds and hundreds of years until some folks felt like you know, science was attacking the Bible and they began to uh, affirm Inerrancy. So both people who support inerrancy or infallibility point to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 17. The Apostle Paul uh, writes to his apprentice Timothy. He, he writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that, that uh, those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what can they do? The Holy Scriptures? They can make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in the Greek that this passage is written in, inspiration is the word God-breathed. It's a compound word, God-breathed something. And so people who believe in inerrancy would say, well, God-breathed it. They wouldn't say dictation, but it, it's pretty close. Like it, it, Every word comes from the mouth of God. And, and, that, and that somehow came through the biblical authors and their, their pens and their inkwells, and, and that got onto the animal skins. Every, every word was breathed out by God. Now, of course, Paul says, though, what are the Holy Scriptures good for? They're, well, they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, which would be infallibility. I would agree with that. And and then he says that the scripture is God breathed, and we don't know exactly what that means. The only other instances we have in the biblical books of God breathing something was when God creates Adam in Genesis 1, and and God breathes into Adam uh, the breath of life, God's spirit. uh, The the Hebrew word for for, uh, spirit and wind and breath are the same. And God breathes his spirit into Adam, and Adam becomes a living being. And then the only other time is when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on the disciples after his resurrection. So the only other instances we have of God breathing are when, when God, the Father, or Jesus breathes the Spirit into somebody or onto somebody. And so does that mean dictation? Does that mean that God dictated the words of the Bible? I don't really, I don't really see that. I see perhaps God breathing life into something. God breathed life into the biblical authors and using their own cultural experiences and their, their vocabularies and their languages. Of course, the biblical books are written in different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and some of them have good grammar, and some of them have not so good grammar. And so dictation doesn't seem to really be supported by the evidence, but perhaps God breathed life into those authors as they wrote. And in fact, 2 uh, Timothy says, what, what, what is the scripture? It's useful. It's useful. And that doesn't downplay the importance of the Bible, but it says it's useful. You can use it to be equipped. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a good person, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, it's useful to you. It's a reliable guide for you. So I believe in infallibility. I believe that the Bible is reliable in all matters of faith and practice, but we still haven't quite answered the question, well, how do I interpret it? It's a library, okay, so there is a, there's a diversity of voices, different places, different times, and, and I believe that somehow God works through that, and, and it doesn't have to be an you know, and make kids argue with their science teachers, because okay. so those are big statements, but then still, how do I interpret? So I want to do something that I've done a few years ago. Somebody mentioned this to me recently. And which means that they actually remembered this, which is like a huge pat on the cap to a pastor, like your pat on the back to a pastor, like you actually remember something I said. Like I'm shocked to hear that sometimes. Somebody said, hey, I remember you doing this a few years ago, and so I'm going to do this now just as an illustration of perhaps what it means to interpret the Bible, what that looks like. Imagine 2,000 years from now, right in the year 4019, um, there's some archaeological study, in, uh, in what used to be Arizona. And some archaeologist digs up uh, my, my iPhone from 2019. Somehow this has been, you know, this has been uh, deposited in some landfill or something, um, and, and they they've found my iPhone in the year 4019. Somehow they were able to get my iPhone to come on. I can't get the battery to last the full day. I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but they, they somehow get my iPhone to turn on, and they see a record of all the texts that I've, that I've sent. And, and they, they find this amazing discovery. This, this primitive Arizonan had a piece of technology. And they're, they're able to read texts on this, on this device. And so they make a presentation. And they, they announce that they've made this amazing discovery. It's a giant announcement. We found this primitive communication device from the year 2019. And... Um, We are learning about the year 2019 in this place that used to be called Arizona from this device. And so an amazing announcement, 2019, before Kim Kardashian became president of the United States. It was just an incredible time. You never know, everybody. You never know. Let's be honest. And so let's see what we can learn from the text. And so they read this text, and here it is, from the dark ages of September 2019. Honey, let's get some buffalo wild wings tonight and watch football. I'm starving. Love you. There's the text. They have made this amazing discovery of this ancient text, and it's going to tell us all about 2019 America. He says, ladies and gentlemen, this is absolutely amazing. We have discovered that... Proof that there was a species of buffalo in Arizona we previously knew nothing about. It is the lost winged buffalo of Arizona. I worked a long time on that picture, by the way. This is from a few years ago, but I'm still proud of it. You know, you've heard of like deep fake, right? Where it's so real you can't tell whether it's real or not. And so we found the, the lost desert buffalo, the winged flying desert buffalo of Arizona. It's an amazing discovery. We've actually formed a team to go dig. And see if, we, see if we can find fossils of the, the amazing desert flying buffalo that we have proof of in the text. It also reveals there was a famine in 2019 America because this unfortunate desert dweller Ryan says he's starving. So there was a, there was a famine in the land. Perhaps the winged buffalo were dying out as a food source and, and these people are hungry. Maybe they ate the last one. Who knows? Who knows? We also deduce that the way the famished, primitive Arizonans diverted their attention from the terrible famine and their suffering was by apparently watching what we think is a form of entertainment called football. Perhaps they played football in the same field where they hunted the flying buffalo. And so Ryan diverted his attention from the famine by watching this game called called football. And oh, even though this... uh, This iPhone uh, says he sent the text to Hannah. He calls her Honey, so he called her by the wrong name. His night probably didn't go so well. He he ends the text by calling her Honey. He says, oh, well, we'll update you on the search for the lost winged buffalo of Arizona. Now, if folks in 4019 were to say, are you sure that, that, that there was a lost winged buffalo, never heard of anything like that before, In the fossil record, all evidence kind of points away from that. They would say, listen, man, we read it in the text. The text says there was a buffalo with wings. We read it in what? What's the matter with you? Don't you believe the text? Don't you have enough faith to believe the text? The search doesn't go very well. About 20 years later... There's another team that's decided to tackle this text, this piece of evidence uh, that was found uh, from the primitive time of 2019, and they do their research. It's a team of archaeologists and historians, and, and, uh, and they, they hold a press conference. And they say, we have some important information uh, to communicate about this, uh, this famous primitive uh, communication device from 2019, and, and we've been doing a lot of work on that over the years, and just want to share the the evidence we found that would shed some light on the text. And so they make a presentation and it turns out that there's been some some misinformation about this this text. Um, First of all, the iPhone was invented by a man named Steve Jobs who started a company called Apple. And, and, uh, you know, as much fun as it would be to find one, it turns out that there probably isn't a lost winged buffalo of Arizona. Um, actually, it turns out, and, and we found this from business records, as we studied the culture of 2019 America, there was a restaurant chain who served this type of chicken dipped in spicy sauce that apparently was originated in bu- a city called Buffalo in the state of New York. And so that's why they called it Buffalo Wild Wings because they were chicken wings and they dipped it in the sauce and people are kind of scratching their heads. I know, just hang with us. And And then it turns out also that that in these restaurants, because we found photos that people have taken from inside of these restaurants, there were lots of primitive communication devices called TV screens. And people would eat these spicy wings while they watched sports on the TV screens. And, and uh, we have pictures, we have records of the programs that people watched on TV. And, and, and so they probably went to a restaurant and they ate food and they, they were entertained by watching this TV. We also found that there was no record of a famine in 2019 America. We just deduced that Ryan, the one who sent the text, was using hyperbole, exaggeration. And he just meant he was really hungry. So let's go out to eat tonight because I'm just, I'm really hungry. And then we also discovered that honey was a common term of endearment in the 2019 United States. So Ryan probably didn't get in trouble that night. He, he referred to his wife, Hannah, as honey because he loves her. And that was a way of, of communicating that. And so we think this is probably a more reliable interpretation of the famous text. How important is it to understand context? In any message that we can communicate, if it's if it's a statement you make to your partner, if it's an email you send to a coworker or they send to you, right, how important is context to help us understand? I would say when it comes to interpreting the Bible, text. Minus context equals embarrassing misinterpretation. You form an expedition looking for the lost winged buffalo of Arizona. When there was information available at your fingertips the entire time, it just took a little bit of work to figure out what the text means. Because if we assume just from the surface of reading the text that it means what we think it means without doing any digging, without doing any research, then we've divorced the text from its context. And we can, we can come up with all kinds of interpretations. Um, how many of you realize that uh, that has been done many times when it comes to church and religion and faith? Some of you have felt the pain of that, that lack of work interpreting ancient texts. And you have you felt the sting of that. When people who, they were sure that it said this, and here's what that means about you. And they were, they were as sure of it as the, as the archaeologists were as sure of the lost winged buffalo of Arizona. But the entire time there were tools available to them. that could help them to decipher the text. There's actually a method, and it's called hermeneutics hermeneutics, and it's not just with the Bible. It's any any interpretation of any message is called hermeneutics. It's the science of interpretation. And I went to seminary for four years to get my master's, and a good portion of that was interpreting the Bible, theology classes, church history classes, um, classes where we studied Second Temple Judaism, which is the, the time in history where the Old Testament came together and the New Testament was written and and that was a, a good part of a four-year degree. And you don't have to go to seminary to be able to interpret the Bible, but you do have to avail yourself of resources uh, written by people who have. And, and that's what I do. You know, I didn't, I didn't bring a picture, but I have, uh, I have three bookshelves in my living room full of resources that I use to prepare sermons. Things like Bible commentaries and concordances and Bible dictionaries and atlases and, and, and history studies of the time and, and systematic theology books and, and archaeology. And without using those resources, we get ourselves into trouble. And so for those of you who maybe are trying to reconstruct and you're asking questions like this, actually there was a question in our, our Frequently Asked question series. One of the questions was, how do I interpret the Bible? How do I know what is culturally bound for that time? And how do I know what's God's will for all time? Well, it's a great question. And to answer that, we go to hermeneutics. And, the, and the, here's the truth. After that, it's still messy. It, we're, we're still not sure about everything. There are passages and the ones we're going to talk about in the next three weeks. How do you deal with some of these passages where it just doesn't fit with the 21st century view of the world or of people, but lots of Christians read them at face value? And there are people who do give time and energy, and they do try to use resources that are available, and they, they come to a different conclusion, and that's okay. But the next three weeks, we're talking about what this looks like when it comes to science and the Bible and sexuality and and the role of women in the Bible and the end times. And and so N.T. Wright, one of the most famous uh, New Testament scholars in the world, wrote in a journal called Vox Evangelica in, in 1991, a regular response to these problems is to say that the Bible is a repository of timeless truth, like an owner's manual, like an IKEA instruction manual, basic instructions. There are some senses in which that is true, but the sense in which it is normally meant is certainly not true. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, now watch, is culturally conditioned. It is all written in the language of particular times and evokes the cultures in which it came to birth. It seems when we get up close to it, as though if we grant for a moment that in some sense or other, God has indeed inspired this book or collection of books, I would say, He has not wanted to give us an abstract set of truths unrelated to space and time. So, there is no such thing, N.T. Wright is saying, as coming up with a definitive list of basic instructions. There is no way of cleanly, honestly, without lying to yourself, going to the Bible and, and coming up with an Ikea instruction manual. There are so many people who take comfort believing that they can do that and will proclaim that loudly on, on TV, in sermons. There are so many people who believe their church is finally the one that can, can take the books of the Bible and just condense it into an IKEA instruction manual. And if you don't believe these things, you're out. It's just not true. There's a saying some uh, some politician um, said about other politicians, he said, everybody running for office in America wants you to believe they were born in a log cabin they built themselves, but that doesn't make it true. Folks have all kinds of reasons for wanting to believe they can have certainty in a bullet point list. I would say that goes back to a need that all of us feel. When you see a lump, when you're not sure how the job's gonna turn out, where finances are, you just think you're getting an ulcer. And that's how we deal with the uncertainty of life, and, and it's, we're thrown into anxiety, and for some people, it's comforting to believe that, oh, it's just easy. I just read it and do what it says, and then they end up looking for the lost winged buffalo of Arizona, and, and hurting other people too, probably, by proclaiming beliefs that have been divorced from its context. So when life throws uncertainties at us, we have a choice to make in how we're going to respond to those. When, uh, when Hannah took our son to the doctor, and I was home, you know, with, with our other little boy, um, I actually thought of the sermon I gave a few weeks ago in the Frequently Asked Questions series on suffering. When, when a bunch of people asked, you know, why would God allow suffering and evil in the world? And the answer I gave to that was, we, we don't really have a great answer to that. The Bible doesn't give us a why, but it does give us a now what. And the story of Scripture from, from Jesus being crucified, his mother watching him die for the prophets being martyred and, and, and ostracized for proclaiming God's truth, justice and righteousness, and, and John the Baptist beheaded for absurd reasons, and all of the suffering that the followers of Jesus went through. I, I, I was challenged last Saturday morning, Hey, hey Ryan, do you believe those things you say in your sermons? Because I, I, wanted, I wanted to be certain. I wanted to believe that I could pray and everything would be okay. Or I could have said, you know, God, I don't understand. How could you let this happen to me and just be angry and shake my fist in God's face? And I, uh, later on that day, uh, took our little boy out, Graham. And I was just looking at him and just misty-eyed thinking about this. And I, I had to choose. Here's how I'm going to deal with the uncertainty. I believe that God is with us and our little boy. I believe that, that uh, the suffering that I see in Scripture happened to those people. And I believe that uh, because of that, we're not alone. And there are other people in the world who are in many people in our congregation who are going through things that are painful. And there's uncertainty there. And, and we're all in this together. It's not a cliche, it's true. We are experiencing this life together. And we don't have easy answers for each other. And, and we can resist this pull towards pretending that, every, that we can be certain about all kinds of things we can't be certain about. And, and we can band together in a, in a real community, a real supportive, loving community, and say these things are a part of the reality of human life. And we don't have a why, but we do have a now what. And I had to trust that some good, even if the, the worst thing happened, and I was brought to my knees and, and uh, in, a, in a heaping pile you know, of sobbing mess for years, if that, if that happened, then there would be some kind of good that could come from my child's life and from his experience and from his suffering and our suffering. I, I had to face that. And, and I believe that. I believe that. Yes, I do believe my sermons. It was good for me to hear that. It was good for me to tell myself that. Because this is an experience of life that we all share in common. And we have this choice to make in the uncertainty of life. And if you're the kind of person who's trying to reconstruct what you believe, interpreting the Bible is messy and it requires humbleness. And no, we're not doing it in a vacuum. We're doing it while we all go through life and and we face things that cause all kinds of uncertainty in our lives. And I'll finish up with this, another quote by N.T. Wright. He says, somehow, the authority which God has invested in this book is an authority that is wielded and exercised, through the people of God, telling and retelling their story as the story of the world. What you're going through, your story, you're telling and retelling your story, we are telling and retelling our story together, and somehow, it's the story of the world as well. We have that in common, it's everybody's story, and we're telling the covenant story as the true story of creation. This authority is also, somehow this authority is also wielded through his people singing psalms, songs. Somehow it is wielded, it seems, in particular, through God's people telling the story of Jesus. So perhaps as we try to reconstruct, if, you, if that's where you are in life, interpreting the Bible looks like I read it, I understand that there are human beings in particular times in particular places who wrote this. I believe they're inspired by God somehow. Maybe, maybe you see that differently. Maybe you see it the same. And it's their story. It's what they're going through. It's what they're wrestling with. And then somehow as I read it, I'm not trying to make it a thesis paper and pretend that all the books of a library are supposed to agree with each other. I'm reading their experience, their story. And then I find myself in that story. I'm a part of that story. And their stories are now a part of me. And we're a community together where we're we're telling and retelling those stories. The story uh, of Jesus. And of who God is and what we're facing together. And somehow we're entrusted with interpreting and figuring it all out. And going through life in its its uncertainty with the story. And we find ourselves in it and it becomes a part of us. And we tell it and retell it. And so looking at my little boy across the table with tears in my eyes, I had to, I had to say yes. I, I, I'm a part of that story. And it's a part of me. And whatever happens in this situation, we're not alone. We can be certain of that. There are all kinds of things we can't be certain of, but we can be certain of that. That we're joining God and God's story.